Hello, everybody. Sorry I've been gone for so long. What's up? Just wanted to let you know that all of the original ebooks and videos at thelogbook.com slash store are available for $1 each through the end of 2018. Every video bundle, every ebook, every ebook bundle on the front page of thelogbook.com slash store, just a buck a piece. This includes Phosphor Fossils, the Best of Classic Gaming Expo, Warp 1, Warp 2, Warp 1, and of course everyone's favorite, Fatherhood Fandom and Fading Out. Everything is just a buck on that front page. Go to the logbook.com store and every cent of what you spend there helps to keep the site rolling downhill very fast. It all started with that portable tape recorder I had as a kid. Uh oh. Then I started pause button editing between two VCRs. Oh my oh my god, the pity giver's dead. The crazy thing is then I got into radio. Mr. Announcer? The yum. Oh my god, thank you very much. After that I went into TV. My whole life, the tape has been rolling, which is fine by me because I always think there's a story to be told, but a word of warning from everyone around me. Do not give this tape to Earl. Welcome back to Don't Give This Tape to Earl, a podcast of extraordinary magnitude from thelogbook.com. I'm Earl, in case you hadn't guessed. Welcome from the state of Utah. I live here now. Occasionally that still just kind of hits me out of nowhere. You know, I'll be walking back to the house from the mailbox. Because the mailbox is kind of like halfway down the road from us. It's one of those cluster mailboxes for the whole neighborhood. And we just have one, you know, one little thing that we have a key to. And I'll be walking back up to the house and you know, mail in hand, and I look up ahead of me, and there's mountains, I mean real mountains, big mountains, like the beginning of the Rocky Mountains mountains, as opposed to the Ozarks, which I realize now were just kind of glorified hills the whole time. Now, these are mountains, and occasionally when I see that view, it still just kind of hits me. Wow, uh, I live here now. Utah. Hmm. Utah. The moving process wasn't smooth. You had everything from vehicle issues to money issues to finding a place to stay issues. Finding a place to live issues once we had found a place to stay for a little bit. Still having finding a job issues. And, uh... Hmm. Boy. Like I said, not smooth, not one of my favorite experiences in my life, and it's one of those things that I've decided I'm, I'm just filing it away in the back of my head rather than relitigating it every day. That doesn't really get you anywhere. And it's, uh, it's kind of funny. Before I left Arkansas for the last time to move out here to Utah, I was kind of joking that Arkansas had only one more tornado season in which to kill me. And then uh, Friday, April 13th of this year, a tornado touched down less than two miles 
from the house where I lived in Arkansas. Now, there was no detectable damage to the house, but uh, there was a, just a little bit of wind because my patio furniture that was outside, I found it out in the pasture with the horse. I don't really think she needed a lawn chair, but hey, you know, I, I'm not going to judge her. So, uh, yeah, uh, Arkansas had only one more tornado season in which to kill me, and it took its best shot. Uh. So, that being said, I'm back behind the mic. I've already done one select game from here, and I'm going to keep doing select game from here. I think that's the one everyone's actually interested in. But, uh, this is the Don't Give This Tape to Earl Fall Preview Special. The, the joke there being that, uh, you know, geez, it's almost Thanksgiving. Fall Preview Special? Really? I've been meaning to sit down and record this, and it's, it's really hard to, because either I've been doing the stay-at-home dad thing, which is extraordinarily difficult to find time to yourself to record in, when you have a four-year-old who's liable to come bouncing down the stairs saying, Dad! For the slightest little thing. There's a spider! There's a spider in the kitchen! I get upstairs, of course, <laughs> there is no spider to be found because yeah, apparently spiders don't like the sound of this giant primate roaring around going, Dad! There's a spider! So... You know, the spider makes itself scarce pretty quickly. So it's it's really hard to find time to record. And I had myself a, a contract job, a, an extremely short-lived contract job. Um, I, I was having to juggle that. And dad! And it just... I don't think it went well because basically they stopped talking to me stopped responding to me you know they won't return my emails they won't return my calls it's like okay I can take a hint I got two paychecks out of them uh, I don't even know if they still exist okay so it's uh it's been a little bit stressful okay it, it, it hasn't been a little stressful it's been a big stressful but I'm I'm kind of finding my happy place here. Uh, those of you keeping up with me on Facebook have probably seen me post pictures of the room. If you haven't kept up with that, there is a recent blog entry on my site, and I will post a link to it on the show page at thelogbook.com/slash/this-tape for your amusement. Basically, in in the coming year, in 2019. I am starting one new podcast and continuing this one and Select Game. Uh, Select Game and the new podcast, which is called Retrogram, will basically, they, they'll still be audio podcasts. They'll, that will still be the primary concern, but they will also evolve a visual component where, you know, you will see stuff on the screen. And much to your horror, you will see me. <laughs> you have never known such terror. Or maybe you have. I don't know. Um, 
Anyway, I am getting the basement of this house, which I originally claimed as my office, and now I am turning it into basically a set for a TV show. I mean, there's lighting and wiring and everything. It's um, it's a very unfinished room. There's not even drywall on, I'm going to say, about 70% of it. Uh, you know, you have not exposed insulation, but you have the plastic sheeting in front of the insulation. Or you have, uh, you know, or you just have unfinished walls. There, there's very little drywall down here. It's Now that we're getting into November, we've had our first snowfall and everything. It's getting down to about 25, 20 degrees at night, sometimes 15. It's really cold down here. I'm not going to lie to you. It's really cold. I had to get myself a pair of slippers to keep on my feet down here at all times because it's cold. Hey, you know, now that we're getting into the days where the daytime high temperature is maybe topping out at about 38 degrees, um, repeating for emphasis, it's cold down here. But the... The intention is to do the visual portions of Select Game and Retrogram here. You know, I will be on camera, which that's taking some getting used to. Uh, there, There's some more musing in the blog entry on what I'm looking forward to and what I am dreading about that part of it. I have a face made for radio. Actually, I, I think it's the body that's made for radio. And the face is just kind of stuck with the body. <laughs> Wish I could do it chroma key. You know, I would just wear a green sheet and be this floating disembodied head and, you know, see the cats walk around underneath me. Anyway, so there's all that to <laughs> look forward to in 2019. There's a lot to look forward to in the immediate future, too. Let's talk about some sciency things. So many things to talk about. As you know, I tend to uh, focus on space science, planetary science, that sort of thing. I don't have a, a degree. Uh, the only degree I ever get around here is the third degree. Um, never got the first and second ones. So it appears that now NASA hasn't issued anything official on this, but it appears from some recently released data on the ionized particle flow in the vicinity of NASA's, you know, now 41-year-old Voyager 2 space probe, the first 
Voyager to be launched. Voyager 2 is actually the first one to blast off. It looks like Voyager 2 has followed its sister right out of the solar system. And that's not a surprise. We knew that was going to happen. We just didn't know when because the heliosphere is not a perfect sphere. It's not even a perfect ebb. It's uh, <laughs> it's a massive, wibbly, wobbly solar wind out there. And the ionized particle flow kind of peaked in October. And at that time, NASA said, huh, we might be getting close. Then you look at the graph for early November, and shoop, it just drops off into nothing. So what that tells you is that the heliosphere, the heliopause, is kind of awake behind the sun as it orbits the center of the galaxy. And there is the heliosphere is sort of a bubble where the sun's solar wind is still pushing against the forces present in interstellar space you know, against the particle flow of interstellar space in the Milky Way galaxy. And when you see that particle count, you know, the particle collision detection go up like the, like it did in October, yeah, you know you're getting close because there is resistance there and it's increasing. And then when it drops off like it did, you've popped out of the bubble. There is no resistance because you're no longer subject to the outflow of particles from our sun any more than you are subject to the outflow of particles from the rest of the galaxy. So Voyager 2 is out there. Took it, um, took it about six years longer than Voyager 1, but Voyager 1 picked up a lot of speed in 1981 during the Saturn encounter that sent it up and out of the solar system. Voyager 2 went down and out of the solar system as the result of the gravity assist maneuver at Neptune in 1989 that was required to steer it as close past Neptune's large moon Triton as it could get without, you know, actually hitting it. So. That, apparently, is how you get out of the solar system. You pick up some gravity assists from some giant planets, and you just keep driving for about 40 years. Story of my life. On April 1st, China's Tiangong-1 space station, really kind of a mini space station. This is more like the early Salyut stations during the Soviet years. Uh, it re-entered the atmosphere and disintegrated over the South Pacific. As I said, on April 1st, now that was the worst possible day of the year for something like that to happen because you had hoaxers, fakers, just idiots out there doing it for the lulls. And, you know, they wanted to get their misinformation and disinformation and just general BS out there. Thanks a lot, guys. Tiangong 2's tour of duty is probably just about over, and then China will be moving on to something more akin to the scale of the International Space Station, except uh, it appears it will be going it alone. But they're making great strides for 
country with a relatively young space program. On October 11th, Soyuz MS-10 launched toward the International Space Station, but didn't make it. The onboard video shooting down the length of the rocket toward the exhaust shows that one of the four strap-on boosters that is tied to every Soyuz booster at launch. They're supposed to peel away gracefully and not be in any danger of colliding with the core stage of the rocket. One of the strap-on boosters didn't. It pivoted around and collided with the core stage and probably holed it. Yeah, probably good old-fashioned hull breach there. And then next thing you know, uh, the whole rocket is out of control. And the crew, uh, cosmonaut Alexei Ovchinin and astronaut Nick Haig, recovered in good health despite a ballistic escape trajectory that subjected them to a mere six or seven times the force of gravity on the way down. It's kind of, there are a lot of similarities to what is called the April 5th anomaly that happened in 1975 to the Soyuz mission that took place actually right before the Apollo-Soyuz mission that summer. Um, in both cases, the launch escape tower that would have dragged the capsule away had already been jettisoned, and so the crew basically had to rely on an automated system that would kick their capsule away from the rest of the rocket before whatever happened to the rocket was going to happen to it, you know, get the crew clear and get them down, even if it was a rough landing. Now, that crew in 1975, they wound up pulling something like 16 Gs on the way down, which is serious, uh, you know, crush your rib cage and break your teeth on landing impact kind of thing. But they survived. So, the crew of Soyuz MS-10 also survived, thank goodness, and uh, hopefully, you know, this, this is not a good position to be in because SpaceX is not launching Crew Dragons yet. Boeing is not launching the, uh, the Starliner yet. We are, we are not launching crewed vehicles from American soil yet. And so the only ride to the ISS is the Soyuz. And all of a sudden we've got questions about the Soyuz. That's, um, that's not good news for the ISS. NASA's test mission was launched earlier this year, and it's going to uh, take up the job description of looking for exoplanets, planets orbiting stars outside of our solar system, which is a good thing because Kepler, sadly, um, shut down and went into safe mode not long after having run out of fuel. The uh, Kepler mission, which discovered hundreds of exoplanets, is out of commission. It can no longer aim itself accurately. And the first light images from TESS show that this thing has a fantastic field of view. And I just saw today where they believe they have discovered a an exoplanet orbiting Barnard's star, which is only six light years from our sun 
And so I think that is a very likely candidate for Tess to take a look at. Uh, there's a very good chance that that planet could actually be optically sighted and not just not just inferred from a gravitational wobble exerted on the parent star, which was how the first exoplanets were found you know, decades ago now. I'm getting really old. So Barnard's star now has a planet. Uh, they've given it a number. It's not Barnard's planet, which is kind of crazy. Okay, well, let's say you do find a second planet orbiting Barnard's star. That's easy. It's Barnard's other planet. Maybe it's Barnard's less habitable planet. I don't know. So, this planet orbiting Barnard's star is about three times the size of Earth. It's believed to be rocky, but it is orbiting at the snow line, so it's not a great candidate for life. I'm not saying it's impossible, but uh, I think that would be an excellent target for Tess to look at. Juno spacecraft has made another close pass of Jupiter and, well, actually, since the last edition of this podcast, it's made more than one close pass of the giant planet Jupiter. The pictures, as always, are gorgeous. But some of the citizen scientists are now processing the infrared data, which is producing really interesting results. Um, the infrared data gets to the heat interplay in Jupiter's atmosphere, and where the visual images of the poles of Jupiter show you a planet that is a giant hot mess of a paint spill, the infrared images show that there is like an octagon of giant hurricanes orbiting a common center at Jupiter's North Pole, which is crazy. But it's much more in line with the hexagonal storm seen at the poles of Saturn than it is with, you know, just a big blob of goo, <laughs> which is kind of what it looked like. Uh, Juno has also been able to get a little bit of imaging time in on the volcanic moon of Io, and wow, uh, you look at Io through infrared, that thing is tearing itself apart. The joint European-Japanese mission to Mercury, Colombo, is off to a perfect start. Now, it's going to take a long time to get to Mercury, which you wouldn't think is very hard to get to because it's closer to the sun and not further away from the sun. But Colombo is going to take its time with a bunch of gravity assists. It'll fly by Earth again in 2020, and then it'll make a flyby of Venus that same year, and then again in 2021. And between late 2021 and 2025, it will do six flybys of Mercury before settling into orbit in, get this, December 2025. If I am still around, I will be more than 50 years old by the time Bepi Colombo is living in Mercury's neighborhood full-time. It is seven years away from its destination. Unfortunately, the European Space Agency deleted its plans for a lander rover to touch down on Mercury very early in the process of planning the mission. On November 26th, we have one hell of a touchdown from a Hail Mary pass to look forward to. 
Now, I'm not talking about a post-Thanksgiving football game. I'm talking about NASA's Mars InSight mission landing on Mars. Now, this is a pretty dangerous landing because it will be setting down at an altitude that's 4,900 feet higher than any lander on Mars before it. So there is less atmosphere that it can use to break its descent. It has to come to a stop sooner after dropping out of the atmosphere proper or dropping through the atmosphere proper um, than its predecessors. Now, Mars InSight will plant seismometers in the surface of Mars and listen for Mars quakes. This will be the first interplanetary seismic experiment since the seismometers that were left on the moon by the Apollo missions. Oh, also out in the asteroid belt, Hayabusa 2 has arrived at asteroid Ryugu. OSIRIS-REx has arrived at asteroid Bennu. And it, the funny thing is, the pictures look almost identical from both spacecraft. The, the asteroids are kind of diamond-shaped. I'm starting to, uh, to formulate a theory based on these initial observations that perhaps the asteroid belt is not the result of a sundered planet, but um, more of a kind of like a, a dropped shish kebab, maybe. That's kind of what it looks like. Each spacecraft is still um, accumulating data on the physical characteristics of their respective targets, so they are operating from kind of a safe slightly distant orbit as they approach. So um, in summary, for those of you just joining us, Hayabusa 2 and OSIRIS-REx are orbiting loosely in the sky with diamonds. Let's discuss, since I was mentioning earlier the job situation, such as it is, this month's main topic, this month, <laughs> podcasts for me this year have been kind of a quarterly endeavor. Sorry about that. Um, th this, this show's main topic are the odd jobs that I have had at various points in my adult life. Now, you have to keep in mind, I started working when I was 17, and I started working in radio when I was 17. That was literally my first job. And I stayed in broadcasting, whether in radio or TV, for over 20 years. I did not serve my time in retail or food service that uh, quite a few of my peers had to suffer through. Although sometimes I have kind of wondered if it would have helped me to have worked even briefly in those industries and understand them a little bit better. Because let me tell you, you get to be about 40-something and you go in and say, yes, I, I literally have no retail experience whatsoever. Hire me! You just kind of get funny looks and 
people just start kind of quietly gesturing toward the door that you came in. Now, broadly speaking, in my creative, in my broadcast career, it's been a largely creative one. I've been a writer, a producer, a graphic designer, an editor, and even outside of broadcast, I have, you know, stayed in that wheelhouse. But uh, even in broadcasting, there are weird jobs. So, weird job number one, I was a Y2K coordinator. Now, what? is a Y2K coordinator. I had just moved from Green Bay, Wisconsin back to Fort Smith, Arkansas, and I landed this job at the local NBC station very quickly, and I, I kind of hoped that maybe once I'd been there for a little bit, I could, you know, prove my worth and kind of slide into the creative services department, um, you know, where I had been in Wisconsin. I had uh, I had come back to Arkansas because my dad was in very poor health, and honestly, uh, there were some serious doubts as to whether or not his spouse, who, in case you can't tell from the way I describe her, was not my mother, um, was going to stick around and take care of him after he had had a, a pretty serious stroke. So. What does a Y2K coordinator do? On a normal day, I would have been scheduling feeds or tapes and uh, quality checking shows before air. And that's how it started out, just to kind of hit the ground at a, a sane pace. So really, most most years, this job would have been satellite coordinator. But 1999 was not a normal year, because we were freaking out about Y2K. All the computers were going to die. All the satellites were going to fall out of the sky. There's almost a wrap there. I'm just not thinking on my feet fast enough. Toward the end of 1999, the number of satellite feeds doubled and then tripled up because, oh my god, the satellites might stop working. Syndicators were feeding shows in bulk, weeks, months ahead of time, enough to get us through the end of January if we had to. Because, you know, presumably, if we dropped back into the Stone Age, except for television, then, you know, what, what were they going to do? Launch new satellites? How are they going to do that if we had, uh, you know, reverted <laughs> back to the Industrial Revolution. Yes, we're going to launch some steam-powered rockets to get these satellites back up there. The, uh, the control room board ops loved me because I increased their workload of recording satellite feeds by easily a factor of four to five times. I, uh, y you know, anywhere I work, any job I work, I try to make it a rule of thumb not to be an asshole to anybody but I was really very conciliatory <laughs> toward these control room ops because I was making their lives a living hell now little spoiler here no satellites stopped working the transmitters didn't stop working we didn't need you know advanced feeds of shows through January 
it was all for nothing. And so I thought, yeah, but everyone agreed I did a really good job of this. You know, this was a near impossible job to do with the scant resources that this station had. This was a, a very underfunded station. They didn't even have a news operation at the time. They've started one since, but uh, they didn't have one at the time. And so, you know, strictly a an entertainment station. And I was kind of hoping that having worked for strictly an entertainment station in Wisconsin, that I could say, hey guys, uh, you know, you need someone to do promos? You need someone to do voiceovers? Need me to stick around as the satellite coordinator? What do you need? The answer was, um, you know, thanks for helping us out. Bye. Hmm. Fortunately, it uh, wasn't even a month after that that I started my seven-year stint at the local ABC station working in news promotion, which that could be a whole podcast of its own. But it was more in the creative wheelhouse where most of my work has been in broadcasting, and so it's not really an odd job. For the next odd job, you have to fast forward to 2013, the shortest job I'd ever had. Well, up until recently, up until the one I mentioned earlier in the show, where, you know, I got two paychecks, and it's like, okay, we're, we're vanishing off the face of the earth and not talking to you anymore. In 2013, the shortest job I'd ever had was working in a call center. Now, yeah, call center is not something I would normally even think of doing but I was coming off of two years of unemployment two years as a stay-at-home dad and uh, because this was after the TV station had laid me off in 2011 and it's really hard to have those kind of gaps on your resume and have people look at you seriously because it, from what I am told, you, this means you present the impression of someone who doesn't really need to work. They just want to work. And, you know, one day they may just randomly not want to work and leave an employer high and dry. That's really not me. Now, this call center was devoted to a single client, which was a payday loan operation you know, the payday advance loans. I really hate that whole concept. It's a deal with the devil, and I have a deep... I have as deep a moral obligation to payday advance loans as I do to gambling. It's not a wise use of your money. Careful budgeting would keep you from having to lean on that. I mean, I know people get hit with things that are bigger than their emergency funds. I know people don't even make enough to build emergency funds. I get it. I get it. But payday loans are, boy, they're really the last resort. And you know, I will tell you that being a part of this predatory lending food chain made my skin crawl. I hated being the collections guy calling and demanding money from people whose accounts were overdue. But, uh, that wasn't even my big concern. There were 
all sorts of things at this place that were really kind of hinky. You were told when you were hired the benefits kicked in at 90 days. And it seemed like there was a regular raft of people who would get fired. And that included me. And lo and behold, it happened on day 89. Amazing, that. There were some other things that were really... uh, really suspect that happened there. The check clearinghouse processing company that handled all of our ACH withdrawals, deposits, that sort of thing, they suddenly dumped us because they they had reasons. <laughs> I'll put it that way. They had apparently gotten wind of some complaints about the company, and they decided that we were resembling an extremely shady fly-by-night operation. Uh, That's kind of hard to argue with. When this happened and we could no longer process transactions tied to a checking account, our management had us call literally every customer and say, hey, uh, we've had a problem with our check processor. I need your debit card number. Now, if you want to spend about six hours a day, because I I worked part-time so I could get out of there early enough to go pick up my son from the school, which was nearby, the private school he was attending at the time. If you want to spend six hours having people cuss you out, call them up and say that. Hey, we can't process your check transactions, so I need your debit card number. Um... Yeah, wow. The pretense under which they dismissed me was that I had missed a day when they were particularly short-staffed due to an ice storm that had slammed the Fort Smith area, uh, leaving a lot of people unable to come in. Well, I was coming in from Alma, and it so happens that on that day, my my then-wife had an ultrasound because we uh, we had just learned that we were expecting baby number two. She did not feel like driving on the ice. She wanted me to drive her for that ultrasound, and so I did. You know, I called in to work and told them what the deal was and drove her to that ultrasound. Well, that was, that was the, uh, the pretext for letting me go. Which, you know, you want to talk about, you want to know what a crappy employer is. It's one who takes notes on stuff like that and says, hey, if we need to let him go, uh, yeah, it'll be this. I lasted less than three months at at that job uh, when they called me into the HR manager's office to tell me I was fired. I started laughing. I smiled for the first time in a long time. Grabbed my bottle of Dr. Pepper from my desk and left. That was uh, that was at the beginning of 2014 when that happened. I had started working that job in uh, late 2013. And so there was a a period of time in 2014 when I was out of work. Then I spotted an ad in Craigslist 
looking to crew up contractors for a hospital IT contract at one of the two major local hospitals. I applied, I got an interview call very quickly, and uh, it was kind of funny. This was in March of 2014, and this was a company that was operating from out of town. They didn't even have an office in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Uh, meet us at Panera Bread for the interview. Okay. I showed up for my interview, uh, freshly showered, freshly shaved, khakis, polo shirt, Apparently, this was such a novelty to them that they verbally acknowledged the fact that I had showered that day. Because apparently, some of the guys who had been sitting across from them in the previous interviews that day had very noticeably not bathed. Yay, IT guys. Really, uh, really making us all look good. The project involved inventorying, upgrading, and replacing... Windows XP PCs and thin clients. Now, thin clients are strictly hardware-based PCs that are tied to the specs of the operating system. You cannot upgrade a Windows XP thin client. Really, at least you couldn't you couldn't upgrade these Windows XP thin clients to Windows Seven. <clears throat> Now, after two months of inventorying, which involved visiting every patient pod, every operating room, every maternity room, every doctor's office, every clinic in about a hundred mile radius with a little Microsoft Surface 2 tablet and a, uh, a barcode scanner gun, reading the barcode labels on all of their assets. That took about two months, and all of a sudden, the company that had hired me, that I had interviewed with, dumped everyone. They had gotten into a dispute with the corporate office of this hospital chain, which is based in St. Louis, about how much it was costing to gather this data and how long it was taking. And all of a sudden, basically, the corporate office gave this company the boot. We were all then picked up by a different contractor to do the replacement and upgrade phase, which means there was about a there was about a two week period where it was like, oh crap, I'm out of work again, you know, with absolutely no notice. The doing the replacement and upgrade that was a bit more fun. Now I had to go back to all these places I'd been before, but I was good at what I did. I was f I was able to do it very fast. I was able to do it correctly and accurately. And, you know, this being a hospital, you, know, you kind of felt like maybe you were actually helping your fellow humans instead of just, you know, doing whatever for the damn dollar. But there was some strangeness in, uh, in October of 2014. I was still working there, going around replacing computers. But that was also the hospital where little C was born. And so there was kind of some strangeness because I, I showed up, you know, with my, with my wife in labor. You know, she was scheduled to have a C-section because, you know, although she was in labor, the baby was not moving. Hey, you know, 
It's nice. It's warm. You've got a good, strong Wi-Fi signal in there. You've got cable. Uh, cats lay on mom's belly and purr for you. Why would you want to come out of there? And so I, you know, was hanging out in the maternity ward. I was off work, but I had my work badge. And the you know, maternity nurse is like, whoa, ho, 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 report to HR immediately, buster. It turned out that that was a huge no-no because my contractor badge would circumvent all of the security systems in the maternity ward. You know, the, the babies are fitted with little little ankle bracelets, you know, befitting their future as convicts. No, not really. But they, you know, they were outfitted with security devices so you couldn't literally steal a baby. That contractor badge I was wearing would have allowed me to just waltz right through those security measures. And so, yes, questions were asked. My wrist was slapped. I didn't go back to work for about a week. And even after that, I wasn't back at work for long. The project ended in December of 2014, and uh, the contract ended literally, I, I think it was the day before Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas! You're out of work again. Now, the Rogers location of that same hospital, Jenks, this is a in, you know, national corporate-owned hospital chain. They had me back in uh, right before July 4th, 2015 because they were putting in an expansion of their emergency room and they needed computers brought in, installed, configured correctly really fast. And they contracted me for two weeks to work this. And I kind of got it done in one week. But I had made sure this time that the uh, you know the company that had hired me for the previous replacement phase at the Fort Smith Hospital, I'd made sure that they hired me for a contract of X duration, which was two weeks. Didn't matter if I finished before then; I was still on the payroll. And so I literally got to sit around in the uh, in the parts room of the IT department at that hospital in Rogers, which was an hour's drive either way from Alma. That second week was about sitting in the parts room with my tablet, hitting the hospital Wi-Fi, looking for my next job. So, that's not a bad way to spend half your contract still earning a paycheck. However, prior to that in 2015, oh, I had worked a very different job. 2015, the summer of 2015, was the summer of a thousand short, odd jobs. So I had that hospital IT gig. Uh, from there, I went to a, literally a two-day job running teleprompter for the Walmart um, vendors meeting that was held annually in Bentonville, Arkansas. Uh, the governor of Arkansas was there, the secretary, the federal secretary of commerce was there. Um, and so I ran teleprompter for them. One day of practice, one day of the actual show. 
that was a sweet job because that paid in excess of 20 bucks an hour. I kind of like that. Of course, you know, it's funny, uh, you move to Utah and it's like 20 bucks an hour is what minimum wage really ought to be here because the housing situation is insane. Uh, there was a short gig installing printers in banks. And then, prior to all of that, I was a human target. The job on paper was actually called Battlefield Civilian Actor. The job was this. You put on Middle Eastern robes and headscarves in the dead of summer. You pretend to be Middle Eastern civilians. This was out at Fort Chaffee, which is a mostly disused army base, now mainly used for training exercises south of Fort Smith, Arkansas. Um, Fort Chaffee is famously where Elvis Presley got his head shaved when he enlisted during World War II. Now, I, yeah, I don't exactly hang out at army bases a whole lot, so I did not know what they had out in Fort Chaffee, where we would be, you know, where this training exercise would be taking place. Holy crap, they had Baghdad built in the back of Fort Chaffee. I mean, literally, you drove in under the crossed swords. Um, a whole village of buildings built out of concrete and cinder blocks. Not actual functional buildings. Most of them didn't have furniture. They were empty. But basically the, uh, the thing was the National Guard was sending the next batch of guardsmen to train for um, you know, patrolling civilian areas in the Middle East that they were about to be shipped out for. So these were your, you know, these were your National Guard people who did not live and breathe army stuff every day. They did it on the weekends. Now they were doing it every day because they were about to be doing it every day in Afghanistan or Iraq or somewhere like that. The idea was that you mill about in these village settings and you know, just act like innocent civilians. You might get stopped, you might get patted down, you might get told to put your hands on your head, drop to your knees, and kiss some dirt while they search you. Um, you could get very real weapons pointed at you. Now, they were loaded with blanks, and they were fitted with kind of a laser tag thing, and we all had harnesses that we wore on top of our robes to register a hit. Uh, if your harness started emitting a an intermittent beeping sound, you were wounded and you had to act as such. If it uh, emitted this steady, long, high-pitched beep, well, that was analogous to a flat line that you see in the movies. You were dead, and you had to uh, you know, lie down and let some ants crawl all over you. And for this, they paid you not quite 14 bucks an hour. The idea was, really, none of us were supposed to ever be shot. But, you know, you wind up with guardsmen who were worried about shipping out for the first time to the Middle East. Or maybe not for the first time. But they have 
you know, very earthly concerns on their mind about their families, their jobs, and so on. And they're going to go into a war zone where, you know, you've got about an even chance of someone walking up to you to blow you up or kill you in some fashion. Yeah, these guys were jumpy. I don't blame them a bit. I would have been jumpier than they were. My co-workers were a pretty motley mix. You had rednecks, you had super right-wingers, you had middle-aged women, and you had teeny bopper girls. Now, those last two categories I did not expect to see as many of as I did. The other thing that I, I didn't expect was that they had a really hard time getting the same people to keep showing up and do this. I mean, yes, it was summer. Yes, it was hot. But here's the thing. None of us were insured for this. The National Guard couldn't insure us for this. Our, you know, the company that we worked for that does battlefield simulations and training couldn't insure us for this. And so a lot of the time we were told to wait in these rented pickup trucks which got the hell beat out of him on these back roads that were not kept in very good shape. Um, <laughs> I kind of half wondered if I could have picked up one of those trucks cheap at the end of this gig. But, uh, yeah, we were told to turn on the trucks, run the air conditioning, and just talk amongst ourselves or, you know, play on our phones, whatever. They would really only have us get out and you know, do the milling about as innocent civilians. Yeah, if they were absolutely sure that the exercise was ready to go, there was a lot of downtime. There was a lot of waiting time. Now, uh, who were our guardsmen up against? They were up against the 101st Airborne. And I remember about two days into these exercises, uh, the Airborne guys were just kicking the guardsmen's ass. Uh, the airborne troops were serving as what is called Op 4 or opposing forces. They are acting as the enemy in a military exercise. And yeah, it's their job to kick your butt any way they can because that's what you have to look forward to. But about two or three days in, um, the commanding officers in charge of the exercises had to tell the... Uh, <laughs> had to tell the airborne op for please lay off so you don't completely demoralize these weekend warriors please sometimes it's uh, pretty exciting because you would have a an exercise commander who would pick you out of your group and they would tell you to go be a high value target you know they'd sit you with a mortar that was filled with uh dust and like peanut peanut shell dust and a sticking agent to stand in for an explosive device or a mortar or what have you. And they'd have you sit there with this thing right next to you with ear protection and goggles and a dead man switch. And the you know, the object of the exercise was for the guardsmen to rush into the building and kill you without letting you kill them. Um, that was just, that was just really, that was really weird. Um, 
you know, a lot of the times they were like, uh, you know, okay, do, you know, just act like you're afraid, act like this is alarming you. Well, you know, these dudes are shooting blanks. That stuff was loud. And, you know, you'd wind up hitting the dust and covering your head, covering your ears, whatever. No acting required. Yeah, act, you know, act alarmed. No, dude, there's gunfire going off all around me. I am alarmed. Thank you very much. That was a really interesting job, and it's kind of, it's one that I'm glad I did just the once. Maybe everyone should do that just the once. To kind of get a taste of what our military is up against. Guardsmen have a really tough job. They are not full-time soldiers, and if anything I did for those weeks during the summer of 2015 helped them come back in one piece, then, you know, it was worth whatever discomfort or non-feigned alarm that I had to put up with. On the side effect <laughs> of this job, so I, I had an acquaintance who was, you know, <sighs> I'll put it this way, he, he was an Art Bell listener, he, he was an InfoWars listener. When I told him what I was doing for work that summer, he was like, oh, oh, you're a crisis actor, it's Jade Helm 15, oh man, watch your back, if you find out too much. They'll kill you. Uh, okay. So what have I been doing recently? Well... Here a few weeks ago, I went to an interview for a content writer position at a company here in Utah. Basically, what they were doing was they were hiring outside contractors to work from home writing and editing Amazon product descriptions. Uh, some of these product descriptions came from China and had an epic amount of broken English, which I had dealt with in my previous job, the last job I held in Arkansas when I was uh, doing website manuals and packaging for a company that was the American distributor for Chinese-made generators and pressure washers and so on. I, I had dealt with the Chinese um, tendency for imperfect English in ample quantities. And so uh, everyone thought I was good for this job. It, now, it wasn't a, a fun kind of writing. It was very stilted and unnatural. You were stuffing every bullet point, every line of every description with as many SEO keywords as you could possibly get in there. And it just... It, it didn't come off sounding like, you know, this was a conversational kind of writing. That's, that's how they teach you to write news promos. Is It's a conversational kind of writing because you have a person on screen saying this. It has to sound like something a person would say. And so this SEO keyword writing, this was about as far from that style of writing that I have so many years of experience in that I could almost do in my sleep. It's about as far as far from that as you could get. Now imagine doing that with a four-year-old running up and down the stairs all day. Dad! 
I started doing more and more of it at night. This apparently displeased them. And after a while, like I said, they just stopped communicating with me. So hey, I'm on the market again. Yay. So, moving along, what have I been watching? What have I been listening to? God, what have I been doing with my life? Well, I'll put it to you this way. When, um, when you are stranded in a hotel room for six weeks with two bored kids because, you know, you showed up right in the middle of summer vacation for schools, so you've got two kids. <clears throat> you've got a dog. You've got five cats in a hotel room with two beds and a TV. And you don't have enough money to go anywhere and do anything except maybe to the park every other day or so. That TV is on a lot. I've watched a lot of stuff. Just very little of it was what I wanted to be watching this year. So, uh, this is the year that I completely missed a Star Wars movie in the theaters. Now, yeah, it's not really a big deal. It's not like I haven't seen it at all, didn't get to see it at all. Yes, I've seen it now, now that it's out on Blu-ray and so on. But I totally missed Solo in the theaters. You know, I... Well, maybe it's not the first Star Wars movie I've missed in the theaters. I, uh... I didn't go see the the Clone Wars opener until uh, yeah I didn't see that until it was on home video okay what well, this is the first live action Star Wars movie I've missed in the theaters and you know that was always going to happen at some point because someday I'm gonna be dead and probably won't be going to see as many movies as I do now at least I hope not uh, Better hope the popcorn smells good that night. Um, but, yeah, I totally missed Solo because of moving. It opened just right before I left Arkansas. And I, like you know, like I said earlier, the move was not a smooth one. It was fraught with difficulties, as they say. And <clears throat> it wasn't until we got moved into a house that we are now renting that I suddenly realized, oh wait, I totally forgot about Solo. So the good news is, I really enjoyed it. Now, I know there are some complaints that there were very few surprises in the movie, but really do there need to be? The, the background of both Han and Chewie adds texture to their actions in the later movies, which of course were filmed much earlier. Especially Chewie. Now Han would have been happy to steer clear of Imperial entanglements, as he put it, for as long as possible, forever. And Chewie, he is always ready to throw down with the Empire because his people have been enslaved. Um, you know, I was kind of 
My jaw was kind of on the floor at the end of The Force Awakens because, man, the last last several minutes of that movie, Chewbacca kills a lot of people. Yes, they're stormtroopers, but, you know, I think we've established at this point, they're not clones. They're, they're people. Brainwashed people, but they're people. And Chewie kills a lot of them. But, now we have some context for why. The cast of Solo was really fun. Now, I think it's safe to say that Donald Glover owns the whole movie as Lando, and I am ready for the Lando movie now. But, I really don't have much of a, anything to complain about with Alden Ehrenreich as Han Solo. Um, he makes a perfectly passable young Han. Now, does he look like he's ten years or so away from turning into Harrison Ford? Not really. But his voice sounds right, his mannerisms are right, and, you know, for all of the pre-release scuttlebutt that, you know, oh, you know, we weren't happy with his performance, we had to bring in acting coaches, dialogue coaches, whatever. I didn't really pick up on any of that. I mean, he had a huge amount of swagger. <laughs> in many places, it was unearned swagger that almost got him killed, and that was even funnier. Solo clearly leaves things open for a sequel, All, you know, I and I think it would be a sequel in which we would expect to run into both Jabba the Hutt and a certain uh, leftover Sith Lord. But the box office on Solo is soft enough that Disney has hit the brakes on the Star Wars standalones for a rethink. Now, a lot of people acted like this was a disaster, except that no further standalones had been announced. So... You know, it's not like anything's actually been cancelled. But it might mean that Disney is going to be a little bit more cautious with Star Wars compared to the release cycle it's been on with Marvel, which is, you know, something on the order. You know, five TV series and four motion pictures a year, all interconnected. Um, Star Wars is still an event by comparison. And I'm, I'm kind of okay with it staying that way. Now, speaking of Marvel and Star Wars and Disney, um, it's worth noting that the first two Star Wars live-action series have already been announced for Disney's streaming service, which will be called uh, Disney Plus. And the, uh, the first one, which we've already seen a production photo, a single production photo from, is called The Mandalorian. <clears throat> and it involves a Mandalorian, one of Boba Fett's people. It looks a lot like Boba Fett because, you know, their armor is um, pretty homogenous, if you think about it, for a whole planet full of warring factions. You wouldn't think they would all have very similar armor, but they do. The other live-action show that I'm much more excited about revolves around the character of Cassian Andor from Rogue One, which was the first standalone Star Wars movie. 
I loved that character. I loved Diego Luna as that character. I would happily listen to Diego Luna recite the phone directory for me. Obviously, the Cassian Andor series takes place before Rogue One because um, at the end of Rogue One, Cassian isn't so much rebel as he is uh, Cajun. <clears throat> but I'm really, I'm really interested to see what they do with that, you know, kind of moral gray area. I'm fighting the good fight, but, you know, do the ends justify the means, the occasionally questionable means, which was a big thing in Rogue One. Uh, definitely worth going back and watching, re-watching Rogue One between now and then. I don't expect the Cassian Andor series to hit our screens anytime before 2020 because it was just announced. They've got to get The Mandalorian produced and post-produced and uh, streaming before then. But, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really getting jazzed about the prospects of live-action Star Wars on TV. Um, let, let's leave the Skywalkers out of it, please. I think that would be a capital idea. Now, also speaking of things under the Disney umbrella over at Marvel, Netflix canceled both Luke Cage and Iron Fist. And uh, these cancellations were both announced right after Disney announced The Mandalorian, which obviously, you know, won't be on our screens anytime before 2019. I don't think it takes too much brain power to uh, put two and two together here and see that uh, these shows getting canned from the Marvel shows getting canned from Netflix are probably going to resurface on Disney Plus. I mean, after all, if you put Luke Cage and Iron Fist together, don't you wind up with the world's mightiest heroes? Well, there you go. All of a sudden, you've effectively uncanceled both shows. And, of course, it's already been announced that the uh, the new final season of Clone Wars, you know, bringing things up to, you know, 30 seconds before Revenge of the Sith, will also be on Disney Plus in 2019. So Disney Plus, boy, doesn't that sound a lot like CBS All Access? Hey, let's talk about things that are on CBS All Access because the Star Trek universe is hopping too. The trailers for Star Trek Discovery Season 2 look really interesting. Uh, Captain Pike taking command of the Discovery, number one taking command of the Enterprise. Um, the casting for number one is just really remarkable. She looks about as much like Majel as I can imagine anyone who is in a status of not being Majel could possibly look like Majel. Now, of course, everyone's really freaking out because Ethan Peck is bearded Spock, not goateed Spock. Now, that, that Spock is from the Mirror Universe. This is hairy, bearded Spock. This is Harry Bearded Spock who's gone off on some kind of vision quest or something. <clears throat> and people are freaking out about it. Yeah, there's a faction of fandom that is really anti-discovery. Which is fine, you know, I'm... I'm not going to try to dictate 
anyone else's headcanon to them. But we're talking about the ones who want the show wiped out of the timeline, and you know they're starting petitions and boycotts and what, whatnot. Because uh, <clears throat> it's a perfectly reasonable proposition for a media consumer to demand that a major media outlet completely stop what they're doing and heed their wishes. I'm sure CBS is racing the master tapes as we speak. <laughs> no, not really. If you don't like one of the Star Trek shows, fine, fine. I know a lot of people who uh, don't think that the the short-lived version of the uh, the animated version of the original series with Kirk and Spock from the 70s should be held as valid. I think it's valid, but you know, I was a kid back then. I wasn't crazy about, you know, large portions of Voyager, particularly after Jerry Taylor left the writing room, because this meant that you had a room full of 30-something men trying to write stories centered more often than not on two strong-willed women, uh, to wit Janeway and Seven of Nine, and the result there was some really implausible and inauthentic dialogue at times. It's okay if you don't like one of the spin-offs. But, you know, I don't go around saying, hey, Voyager should be struck from the record. It never happened. And, you know, I don't want to go around demanding that everyone throw their DVDs in the fireplace. But getting back to the, you know, the theme that is uh, very present in the Season 2 Discovery trailer, if we're going to have a season where we're flirting with the idea of Spock having a religious experience of some sort. I want... There's a name I want to hear uttered. That name is Cybok. It would be... It would make perfect sense for Cybok to come up in discussion, especially since we're going to be hearing from Sarek some more. Sarek should be concerned that Spock is going to go the way that Cybok did. Maybe he'll be concerned that Burnham might be going that way as well. I'm not even saying Cybok should show up. I'm just saying he should be a topic for discussion because it would be it would be very conspicuous for that not to be a topic of discussion. Star Trek Discovery Season 2 premieres in January of 2019, but in the meantime, we're getting these wonderful little things called short treks. The uh First or second Thursday of every month between now and the beginning of Discovery's second season, these little 15 to 20 minute self-contained stories. Yeah, I, I think it's great that official Star Trek, studio-produced Star Trek, has taken note of what the fan films had already shown, which is that you can tell a complete story in a short amount of time. Uh, Runaway was the first one. That was a great little morsel of a story. And I thought it was very much in the Star Trek spirit. And on a human level, I identified with Tilly so much. You know, her mother's well-meaning, but very tone-deaf pep talk. And that's pep talk in air quotes there. You know, well, you know, it's great you're going into command training, but you're gonna fail. I love you. Yeah, I, I identified with that. I've heard that kind of pep talk before. And yes, it does make you want to scream into a pillow, so yeah, I totally I totally get Tilly there. 
And then, when Tilly meets the stowaway that only she knows about, and there's an echo of this person's situation, there, there's an echo of her own situation in this new person's dilemma. You know, when she finally reveals the pressure that she's under to return home and take the throne, that's, uh, that's a neat little parallel. It's a great little first contact story that, you know, really required Tilly to be in the hot seat. And, uh, the, the second short trek, Calypso, wow, that, that one got weird real quick, and I'm not sure how it connects to the rest of Discovery. Because all the short treks so far are in the Discovery time frame. But that's the thing. I would love it if, you know, if they're going to keep doing short treks between seasons of Discovery. It would be great if they could branch out and revisit other parts of the franchise, other eras. I mean, the, the European convention they had recently, where they had Armin Shimmerman, Max Grudenchik, and Aaron Eisenberg get back into makeup and back into character as... Quark and Nog and Rom and, and they look like not a day has passed yes you, you absolutely can go home again something else that would be great if they're going to keep doing these short subjects would be to set one aside per year and do a script submission contest you know, dedicate it to the memory of Michael Piller who held the door open for so many unagented spec writers during the run of Next Generation and discovered the likes of Ronald D. Moore, who is now showrunner on Outlander and has been showrunner on things like Battlestar Galactica and Caprica, uh, Rene Echevarria, Brandon Braga, who's a showrunner on Salem, and Cosmos. Uh, Michael Piller's tendency to look for previously undiscovered talent has had huge dividends for anyone watching television this century. And I think it would be great if Star Trek returned, at least even in a limited fashion, to holding that door open for hopeful writers out there. I think Michael Piller would approve. The Orville is coming back 30th of December for its second season. I loved the last few episodes of its first season. Uh, the Orville is just wonderful. <sighs> For as much carping and bitching as there is going on about TV shows, you know, about genre TV, about sci-fi right now, we are spoiled for choice on space-based sci-fi, which didn't always used to be the case. You know, not even ten years ago, you were stuck on Earth watching... You know, Eureka and Warehouse 13, and, you know, this was all the sci-fi you were going to get, and the only thing going into space at that point was Galactica. <clears throat> but the Orville is great. I mean, if, if you want your dark, gritty, grim, dark, modern spin on space-based sci-fi, you've got The Expanse, which is coming back for one more season on Amazon, and you have Discovery. And, you know, if you're old school... There's the Orville, and it, the Orville is like someone is making the best Star Trek The Next Generation fan film ever, and they just happen to get it a slot on national TV. That's right, Obi. 
So if you don't like Discovery, if you don't feel like it's real Star Trek, maybe give the Orville a try. Season 2 looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, further down the, the grim, dark end of the scale, there is Netflix's Lost in Space. Um, I remember joking before we even got a trailer for Lost in Space a la Netflix that the the uh, the boardroom pitch at Netflix was like this. Okay, Lost in Space. It's like Lost, but in space. I was somewhere between amused and horrified when that turned out to be exactly what it was like. I mean... <sighs> Is, is the flashback narrative device played out already? Are we still doing this? Are we still humping the leg of Lost? Yes. Now, yeah, there are things to like about the Netflix Lost in Space series. I, yeah, I really do want to like it. I, you know, I like the idea of a more serious take on, you know, the Robinson family lost and struggling to survive on another planet, but so much of it just cues to modern TV conventions that it's kind of, I don't know, in some ways I watch an episode of Netflix Lost in Space and I just kind of go, huh, huh, well, you went and did that, didn't you? Right, Obi? This is where you say right. That's right. Now, the new Star Wars animated series on Disney XD, Star Wars Resistance. Jury's still out on that one. The first episode is extremely piloty. You know, it's all set up and not a whole lot of payoff. I'm still getting used to the anime-inspired animation style. It's very different from what I'd come to expect with Clone Wars and Rebels. Now, Resistance is set in the era of the new movies, but prior to The Force Awakens. I'm intrigued by Dave Filoni. Now, he's the creator of the series. I'm intrigued by his statement that the plot will draw from his grandfather's experiences in Europe before and during World War II, especially that period right before the war when you knew that the Nazi incursion was coming, but you were unable to get everyone around you to take the threat seriously. You know, especially when you have diplomats going off and suing for peace in our time. And basically, uh, appeasement under another name. That's a, that's a fascinating thing to think about in whatever Star Wars time frame you're discussing. Oscar Isaac is back as Poe Dameron, and we've been told to expect Adam Driver and Gwendolyn Christie to return as Kylo Ren and Captain Phasma further into the series. I'm really more excited about the idea of Phasma getting screen time. I I kind of thought she, her exit in The Last Jedi, she kind of got punked. And, you know, so much of the build-up prior to The Force Awakens was, hey, this character's a badass. Well, we've we've heard that before. We've heard it with Boba Fett. We've heard it with Darth Maul. You know, this character's a badass, and they're going to get dismissed very quickly and abruptly. So I I want Star Wars Resistance to show us why Phasma was a badass. 
otherwise she winds up in, you know, too easily dealt with, built up threat heaven with Boba Fett, Darth Maul, and Jango Fett. Second season of Mars has begun on the National Geographic channel. First episode's already aired. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. I hope, I seriously hope, that uh, the show has some hope. I hope that it's not as grim and bleak as the first season, which, you know, included, among other things, a member of the expedition deciding that he was just going to, uh, you know, depressurize a section of the Mars colony and commit suicide by stepping out onto the surface in plain clothes and in shirt sleeves, you know, regardless of whether or not it killed a bunch of other people around him because he was tired of being cooped up on, you know, cooped up in a, a tin can on Mars. Uh, there was a recent article on io9 about utopian-leaning science fiction and why now in the dregs of the Trump administration is not when we need dystopian science fiction. If you want dystopia, you can turn on the news, and it's right there. Now, this kind of that kind of informs my thinking on one of the projects that has been mooted as a another possible Star Trek spinoff. CBS All Access already announced that they were going to do an animated Star Trek comedy series by Mike McMahon. I believe his name is Mike McMahon. He's one of the writers on Rick and Morty. The show is going to be called Star Trek Lower Decks, and it will deal with some of the lower-ranking guys, possibly, dare I say it, the Red Shirts, uh, you know, just trying to get by in their day-to-day -day life on the ship, as well as those occasional hazardous missions off the ship. A lot of fandom uh, seemed really pissed off by that announcement. I see no reason not to look forward to it just yet. There are so many tropes within Star Trek's format that just beg to be made fun of. You know, like the number of times the crew has been taken over by alien entities that made them act out of character. And... You know, of course, the, the whole the whole red shirt thing, which it's kind of interesting because even though you're doing a studio-sanctioned Star Trek show that will be streaming on CBS All Access, you know, it's not like this is a fan project. Now you have to steer clear of things like Galaxy Quest and John Scalzi's novel Red Shirts which have mined some of the same territory, but have gone off in their own direction. So I'm really looking forward to short treks. Uh, perhaps because one of my all-time favorite stage plays is Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, in which the two lowliest messenger characters in Shakespeare's Hamlet sit around and comment on all the court intrigue and then they find themselves in the thick of it to a degree that they wonder if they will survive <clears throat> spoiler I, I know it's been a few hundred years but there may be a few people who haven't you know at least read it um, no one survives Hamlet the rest is silence even for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern they don't make it alive out of their own play 
and yet it's funny. So I'm, what I want from Star Trek short, uh, short, not short treks, Star Trek lower decks, is I, I kind of want Star Trek Rosencrantz and Guildenstern because it's it's morbidly funny, and I think there is some mileage to be gained from that. Now, we already know that a Picard series is coming that was revealed at uh, STLV this year. Patrick Stewart returning to the role. But it's going to be Picard, you know, 25, 30 years after Nemesis. So... I'm I'm all for that, especially if it helps us forget Nemesis. <laughs> now, something that is rumored to be in the works is the possibility that there is going to be a CBS All Access spinoff built around Section 31, which is kind of like Star Trek's version of the CIA Black Ops Division, with Michelle Yeoh as uh, Empress. Georgiou, from the Mirror Universe. <sighs> That's the one concept I'm not enthused about, and it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier, about utopian versus dystopian science fiction at this particular point in our national and cultural history. We need something aspirational. I don't need a fictional dirty tricks squad in the Star Trek universe telling me that 300 years hence, people are still going to be crap. I want something aspirational in the Star Trek universe that says 300 years hence, we know better. Because if I want dirty tricks and political maneuvering and espionage, ah, there's the news for that. Really looking forward to the Amazon Prime BBC co-production of Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's Good Omens. I'm kind of surprised that this is going to have as few episodes as it has. It's going to be premiering in 2019. But the preview, uh, David Tennant and Michael Sheen, you cannot... You know, this is British Michael Sheen. Where, um, it's real easy to say that name and think Martin Sheen. David Tennant and Martin Sheen would be an interesting combination too, come to think of it. But this is David Tennant and Michael Sheen, um, who, let me see, what is what has he played? The okay, in Tron Legacy, Michael Sheen was the kind of foppish uh, nightclub owner who would turn anyone in and then start shooting pulses of light from his walking stick. Okay, maybe that's not a, a really good reference point for what Michael Sheen is capable of as an actor. He's a really good actor. Actually, one of my current favorites in the UK. Uh, the trailer makes the show look like it's going to be a lot of fun, and it also... If it weren't for the fact that Bohemian Rhapsody is in the theaters right now, that trailer could be the best ever cinematic use of a Queen song ever. <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, Cosmos Possible Worlds, the much-delayed second season coming up in 2019. Really looking forward to that. Again, hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson. 
will remind us, no doubt, that we are made of star stuff and creamy nougat. So, uh, is there a show I haven't mentioned yet? Oh, yeah, Doctor Who's back. I missed it for so much of this year. And Jodie Whittaker is the Doctor, and she's wonderful. I, uh... I want to talk about the show and not the fandom for a moment here because it's it's real easy to slide from one into the other I love that this season is not falling back on such very well worn elements as the Daleks and the Cybermen and the Silurians and what have you hey, I miss Strax as much as anyone but I'm kind of glad that I haven't seen Santarin so far this season. Everything is original. Everything is very much, you know, it has a completely different feel, which is kind of what I wanted from a change in showrunner. And Chris Chibnall is really letting the show wear its social conscience on its sleeve. There's an outstanding episode set during the American Civil Rights Movement in which the Doctor and her new <laughs> motley crew of companions are in close proximity to Rosa Parks in the days leading up to her making her mark on history. It's a fantastic episode. I, I know in the past Doctor Who has tried to do things with American characters or American situations and just yeah, hasn't quite been authentic I'm trying to put a, put a kindly find a way to put it kindly but this was and you know the episode set during the partition of India you know the the British colonization of India and you know exploring what that colonial attitude meant to the indigenous people of the area and these are and the funny thing is that's something the big finish has done in audio format in years past but as much as I love big finish it does not have arguably even the potential to get as big an audience as the TV series does. Now let's talk about the fandom. The, this social conscience is, of course, not sitting well with a certain stripe of Doctor Who viewers. And I'm going to say from my observing them in action on Twitter that they tend to be <clears throat> middle-aged white men. They may even be pro-Brexit voters. They really come across as, you know, the, the whole Simpsons meme, old man yells at cloud. They come across that way shouting on Twitter about, you know, the SJWs are ruining Doctor Who! It's kind of funny, those same people were complaining about the SJWs ruining Star Trek and Star Wars in the past few years, and I am still enjoying the hell out of all of them quite thoroughly. 
thank you very much. Now, is that to be expected because the issues explored by these shows tend to come down on my side of the political spectrum? Perhaps. But I think really with the world events of the past few years, you know, when we're talking about the Trump administration, and we're talking about Brexit, and we're talking about the rise of right-wing populism in places like Germany and Brazil and, you know, everywhere. I think, I don't think the SJWs are ruining anything. I think the showrunners are realizing that they have a platform from which they can advocate for a better, kinder world. For a world where principled people stand up and fight the good fight. You know, whether it's Saru standing up on the Bridge of Discovery and saying, we are Starfleet. Or, you know, whether it's the doctor advocating for kindness. I think there's a responsibility when you have that kind of audience, that size of audience, to remind them to be the best versions of themselves. Especially at a time when the hashtag be best has been reduced to little more than a joke. You know, a really cynical in-joke at that. The SJWs aren't ruining anything. I think if anything is happening, the creative forces behind all of these properties are trying to unruin the world for it's too far gone. Just a thought. Wow, that got serious, didn't it? Let's play some video games. Toys, whatnot. Let's talk goodies. The second wave of world's tiniest arcades have started hitting the stores. I know little C and I raided the local Cracker Barrel recently to pick up Dig Dug and Galaga. There's also a Frogger machine, as well as a Cracker Barrel exclusive, which is a Ms. Pac-Man Galaga combo game, which, you know, that's something that actually exists as a full-size arcade cabinet. But, this world's tiniest Ms. Pac-Man Galaga combo cabinet not only can play either of those two games, but there's a secret button combo you can enter to also play Dig Dug on the same machine. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That's like three for the price of one. If you like your mini arcades, not quite so mini, Basic Fun is back at it. There are a couple of Walmart exclusives with the full OLED screens, which I love, as opposed to the, the fixed matrix LEDs. Um, 
Basic Fun has Fix-It Felix Jr. out, probably because uh, Wreck-It Ralph 2 is just around the corner, as well as Ms. Pac-Man. Now, I haven't gotten Ms. Pac-Man yet, but I can tell you that the Fix-It Felix Jr. Basic Fun Mini Arcade is awesome, especially since you realize that unlike uh, Centipede and Cubert and Joust and the other stuff that they have released in this format in recent years, uh, there's this is something original. They don't have an NES version to fall back on and, you know, just throw in there on an NES cord FPGA chip. FPGA, yes. Hello, Maria. Yes, I, I was just tripping over my tongue. How are you, kitty cat? Hasbro has finally put out a Star Wars Black Series product that I want to buy. Now, the, the Black Series generally refers to the 6-inch scale Star Wars figures that they are doing in waves and I really don't like scale changes my Star Wars stuff going all the way back to when I was a kid was three and three quarter inch scale and that's still the scale of Star Wars figure that I tend to buy now but hey they finally got me to buy something black series porgs it's a little box of porgs two little porgs one of them has movable wings the other one's just kind of sitting there like sitting in its nest and uh, <laughs> I know I'm the only guy who goes on and on about porgs like that but man a little box of porgs yes I got two <laughs> I had one at work that I kept with my anxiety hippo and I had one that I kept at home and now all of the porgs just sit here side by side looking at me staring at me judging me <clears throat> speaking of the black series um the black series isn't exclusively six inch there was also a three and a three and three quarter inch black series of figures more joints more points of articulation more detail that is apparently now folded completely into the three and three quarter inch vintage collection which is a uh a line of figures where the packaging is made to resemble the Kenner figures from the 1970s and 80s only it includes characters from the modern movies so you you have this Kenner style packaging except it's young Han Solo or it's Cassian Andor or it's uh, or this one that I'm really really looking forward to that will be coming out next summer Luke Skywalker from the battle scene on Crate in The Last Jedi. That's the one where, you know, after being this old gray-haired coot for, you know, the whole movie, he suddenly shows up, his hair's darker, you know, he's wearing all black, you know, he's doing this gunslinger thing to psych out Kylo Ren. I've been looking forward to that figure, and it is coming on Kenner-style packaging next year. I can't wait. Um, Conspicuous... By absence are any characters from the animated series Rebels. They've had a few Clone Wars characters in the Kenner-style packaging, but no one from Rebels yet. Hasbro has also released some early shots of their figures for Star Wars Resistance, which will not be hitting the shelves until January 2019 at the earliest. 
Now in other three-quarter-inch three figure news. Uh, Super 7 has taken back the Reaction brand with a vengeance. They've released a wave of six characters from Planet of the Apes. The, the original Planet of the Apes movie cycle. The packaging is to die for its painted artwork. The figures are pretty good, too. Um, you know, I went in thinking, you know, I'm just going to get the ape characters because I really have no interest in an action figure of Charlton Heston wearing only a fur loincloth. But then you see the the artwork on the backing card, and then you kind of realize there's a certain special something about Charlton Heston wearing only a fur loincloth. Okay, I'm just kidding there. Super 7 has also rolled out a line of three three-quarter-inch Universal Monsters figures with similarly beautiful packaging artwork, and at last, at last, I could have a Metal Luna mutant from this island Earth stalking the halls of the Death Star, or driving a land speeder, or the Batmobile. <sighs> Definitely putting the Metal Luna mutant on my Christmas list. <laughs> the weirdest three and three-quarter-inch action figure of the year goes to Funko because as a New York Comic-Con exclusive they did the Bundy family for married with children so um, since this was a con exclusive you may as well start keeping an eye on eBay the prices will go stratospheric like the box set of the Golden Girls that they did several years back which you know now tops $500 routinely on eBay I wish I had gotten those when they were cheap. I'd much rather have the Golden Girls than the Bundy family. Although now that I mention it, I do kind of want Al Bundy and the Metaluna Mutant to fight a pitched battle in the halls of the Death Star. Or drive a land speeder down to Wendy's and get a burger. There is an epic selection of Christmas ornaments this year from Hallmark. I don't think I've ever felt my wallet bleeding dry while looking at their annual offerings before, but man, there are so many that I want all at once this year. Obviously, the Star Trek ship ornament, ornament ornament this year is the Discovery. But you can also get Serenity from Firefly or HAL 9000. And, of course, HAL Talks. Uh, nothing says fond memories of holidays spent with the fam like an artificial intelligence that's talked itself into justifying murder. There's also a Donkey Kong machine. Uh, presumably to make up for the fact that Nintendo isn't letting anyone play ball with its properties in the mini arcade format. Hello, Nintendo. I would give you some of my money if you would do that. And, uh, let's see, for those of you who are Porg fans, there's R2-D2 festooned with Porgs, and uh, one that I've already gotten, it's a budget-priced Porg. I got it for about seven bucks at Walmart. You can hang it from your tree in the way that only a Porg hangs from a tree. The oddest out of this bunch was another convention exclusive. This was at STLV this year. It's a two-pack of uh, Lieutenant Mares and Lieutenant Eriks from the early 70s animated Star Trek. Now apparently, according to, um, according to Kevin Dilmore, who is in charge of the Star Trek ornaments at Hallmark, these Apparently represent the first time in 40 years that anyone has ever made merchandise based on these two characters. A, a 3D representation of these two animated characters. Now, why did I get them? Well, here's a little pro tip. If you stand them on something about the height of an Altoids tin, and you put that something about the height of an Altoids tin, 
behind a row of your 1990s Playmate Star Trek action figures of the original Enterprise crew on your shelf. You stand Mares and Erex on that, and they are the perfect size to fit in. Just a, just a hint. And a huge thanks to my friend Heather from the Shore Leave podcast for picking those up for me at Star Trek Las Vegas this summer. Silva Screen is going nuts. Doctor Who music from the classic series they have released. The full soundtracks from, you know, some 35 years late, The Five Doctors, and, uh, or like 50 years late, The Invasion, which was the final Cybermen story of the 60s, had a very distinctive kind of spy movie style soundtrack. Great artwork on the covers of both of these CDs. Silver Screen is also doing a two CD or two LP set of music from Class, which was the very short lived Doctor Who spin off that sometimes I think I'm the only one who enjoyed, and yet Big Finish has revived them to great acclaim. And I thank Big Finish for reviving Class in audio form. The Atari Age Forums are bustling with homebrew activity for the Atari 2600 and other Atari consoles as usual, but the standouts in the 2600's homebrew scene right now are Mappy, based on the Namco arcade game of the same name. That one's getting rave reviews. And there is a work-in-progress project to port the 1982 Tron arcade game to the Atari 2600 for the first time. And you know what? I think we ought to play him. Mappy. Oh, that's cute. Oh, wow, they've got the intro screens and everything. This is... Oh, wow. This is cool. I'm not good at Mappy. I like to play Mappy, but I'm not good at it. <laughs> Oops. Mouse police. Okay. Yeah, this is a really... This is a really excellent translation of this. Including the fact that I am dying constantly. That's right, Obi. Of course, you're on the cat's side, aren't you, Obi? Because you're a cat. I know how this works. Obi, you're blocking the screen. Almost cleared the level. Oh, and I get to put in my initials. That's fun. Now, that won't survive the machine being powered down, but that's okay. This is great. This, I mean, this is a fantastic home version of this.
the control is really smooth. I mean, all the details about this. The music, everything is just perfect. I mean, right down to the trampolines changing colors, letting you know that they're about to uh, break on you. Right down to the cats staying right on top of me, so they kill me. That is in the game, not my actual cats. Oh, I think I got all of his henchmen at once. Are you a henchman or are you a hench mouse? You, sir, are a hench mouse. And you killed me suddenly. That's just, that's just outstanding as arcade ports go. Oh, it knows it's still me. <laughs> wow. That's just amazing. Okay, well... Let's uh, move on now and play another new homebrew arcade port which just kind of blows me away by the fact that it exists. Tron the Arcade Game. Now, there's a thing about... Oh! He got me. There's a thing about this game that gets me, and it is that as much as I dearly love Tron, I really suck at the game. Ah. Gotcha. Okay, so that was the tank level. The thing about this game that gets me aside from the fact that I, generally speaking, suck at Tron, is, uh... <sighs> you need two joysticks plugged in to play this. Um, the second joystick controls everything that was controlled by the rotary controller in the arcade game. Now, that's kind of frustrating because I would really like a spinner there. You know, I'd like to have a reason to dig out my Indy 500 driving controller. But, uh, yeah, no dice. You have to have a joystick. You have to have a joystick for it to work. This is bad. I'm not even getting off the... I'm not even getting off the tank level. There we go. Alright. Cone level is executed really nicely. Um, 
it's colorful in an Atari kind of way. Not quite the rainbow hues of the arcade game, but it gets the point across. The, the dual joystick control is kind of... It doesn't quite break the game, but... I'm already not great at Tron, and this makes it even harder for me. <laughs> I'm just blasting away at the wall. Okay, that's the grid bug stage, and I died really quickly. And I'm back to the tanks. Okay, I'm... what hit my tank? That was weird. The, uh, the author of this Tron port has said on the Atari Age forums that it is a work in progress, so I'm inclined to cut them a generous amount of slack. Okay, cone again. Really, this is this isn't as flashy as the mappy port, but this is about as good as you could expect a game with the relative complexity of the Tron arcade game to look on the 2600. I'm not sure you could really do it better than this. Blasting away. Now, one thing with the cone level is that I don't really get the uh, the inexorable walls closing in thing that the arcade game gives you. The cone stays where it is. So if you run into anything, if you run into the wall in the grid bug stage, you're toast. So Tron the arcade game, that's um that's interesting. <laughs> to put it mildly. And that's it. I run out of things to say. Well, <laughs> even close, but I think that's more than enough to fill this long-delayed edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. As always, a huge thanks to Patreon supporters who stuck with me through these summer doldrums months where there was no podcasting going on. 
because it's hard to record podcasts in a hotel room when you don't even have your computer unpacked. And you're stuck in a room with two beds, with two kids, and five cats, and a dog. None of whom really wanted to be there. A little spoiler for you. I'm slowly acclimating to life in Utah. Kind of, kind of getting used to it. Kind of getting used to the view. It's an amazing view to get used to. I, I just, I don't get people who just drive around like there aren't giant snow-capped mountains all around them. You know, let's face it, I come from the very edge of the Great Plains. I look at that stuff and I'm like, wow! Real mountains! Yay! So, I hope to be resuming a regular schedule of podcasting. I hope to be resuming an, a regular editorial schedule on the site itself. I, I can't tell you how many times I've intended to sit down and write material for the site and then you know something happens you know, dad or you know my oldest gets home from school and that's my signal to start working on dinner and you know throwing the little one in the bath hosing him down getting him ready for bed there's you know there's a period of every day where I am on my feet non-stop pretty much until bedtime and you know, the funny thing about sending everyone off to bed is that you can't sit down here and speak, you know, and at normal volume and normal or slightly exaggerated tones of voice because <laughs> it's the damnedest thing. It wakes everyone up. So quite how the podcasting thing is going to work in this arrangement, I still don't know. I need to put up some acoustic foam and kind of... Uh, kind of baffle some of this sound so maybe it's a more effective recording space and quieter as far as the rest of the house is concerned that'll take time and money and you know a huge thanks to the patreon supporters a huge heartfelt thanks to everyone who pitched in on the gofundme i it's almost a cliche to say i can never repay you i can't even imagine how I could possibly repay you other than that I am trying to configure these little guys who hang out with me all the time into productive members of society that kinder gentler society that I would like to see happen that would be nice for right now, considering how difficult it's been to find time to record, I don't know if I'm about to take my customary break between November and February from podcasting, or if I'm going to try to squeeze one in in December out of sheer guilt that I haven't done enough this year. But whether it's late this year or early the next, the next time we pass this way, my friends, I think it's high time we had a conversation about, and there's no easy way to say this, fitty givers.
Thanks for listening to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. You can find the podcast at thelogbook.com slash this tape on FeedBurner and on iTunes every month that it's produced. If you like this and the logbook's other podcasts, feel free to support us at patreon.com slash the logbook. Your support has a direct impact on site hosting costs, podcast production, and other great content. Don't Give This Tape to Earl was written, produced, and hosted by Earl Green. And our shiny new theme music is provided by Jazar. And you're probably wondering, asking yourself, hey, isn't Jazar that 90s genie movie that starred the comedian Sinbad? And the answer is no, because there was no such movie. Jazar is in fact one of the many musicians whose royalty-free, high-quality music you find on freemusicarchive.org. His own website is betterwithmusic.com and licenses all of his work through Creative Commons. I think it's a neat new sound. 